This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Well, I, I know that there have been a lot of tributes given to Dr. Walter Williams, who passed away last week. And, and I have to say that every one of them, I think, was, was deserved. This guy was a tremendous teacher, a tremendous economist, and definitely contributed to my understanding of the world around me. And so I'm, I'm pleased and also a little bit saddened to get to share with you his final column before he passed away. And, and I love that it's on the, the subject of costs must be weighed against benefits. So I guess if you're going to go out, go out on a high note. This is a powerful message, and it's something that I know Dr. Williams uh, talked about, wrote about, and taught throughout his long and illustrious career. He says, one of the first lessons in an economics class is that every action has a cost. Now, that's in stark contrast to lessons in the political arena where politicians virtually ignore cost and talk about benefits and free stuff. If we only look at the benefits of an action, policy, or program, then he says, we will do anything because there is a benefit to any action, policy, or program. And he gives this example. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that 36,096 Americans lost their lives in motor vehicle crashes in 2019. Virtually all of those lives could have been saved if we had a 5-mile-per-hour speed limit. The huge benefit of a 5-mile-per-hour speed limit is that those 36,000-plus Americans would have been with us instead of lost in highway carnage. Now, Dr. Walter Williams says, fortunately, we look at the costs of having a 5-mile-per-hour speed limit and rightly conclude that saving those 36,000-plus lives are not worth the costs and inconvenience. That's not cold, by the way. Says, he says most of us find it too callous when talking about life to simply ex- explicitly weigh costs against benefits. We just say, well, a five-mile-per-hour speed limit would be impractical. Okay, so he says, what about the benefits and costs of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? Much of the medical profession and politicians say that lockdowns, social distancing, and mask wearing are the solutions. CDC data on death rates show if one is under 35, the chances of dying from COVID-19 is much lower than that of being in a bicycle accident. Should we lock down bicycles? It's a fair question. Dr. Martin Koldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard University, biostatistician and epidemiologist, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, let me try that again. Dr. Sunetra Gupta, professor of, at Oxford University and an epidemiologist with expertise in immunology, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician and epidemiologist, were the initiators of the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, more than 50,000 scientists and doctors, as well as more than 682,000 ordinary people, have signed the Great Barrington Declaration opposing a second COVID-19 lockdown because they see it doing much more harm than good. Efforts to keep very young from getting COVID-19, given most will not even realize they have it or will only suffer mild symptoms, may be counterproductive in that it delays the point where a country has herd immunity. Walter Williams says, according to the CDC, COVID-19 deaths in young people from babies to college students are almost non-existent. The first age group to provide a substantial contribution to the death toll is 45 
to 54 years who contribute nearly to contribute nearly 5% of all coronavirus deaths. More than 80% of deaths occur in people age 65 and over. And that increases to 92% if the 54 to 55 to 64 age group is included. So only a tiny number of people under 25 die of COVID-19. Yet schools have been closed and tens of millions of school children have been denied in-class instruction. Mandating that five-year-olds wear masks during their school day, he says, is beyond nonsense. Virtual learning can serve as a substitute for in-class teaching, but it has mixed results. Some parents can provide their children with the necessary tools, maybe hire tutors or take an active interest in what their children are doing online. Other parents will not have the interest, ability, or time. And so he says, here's a lockdown question for you. Government authorities permit groceries and pharmacies to remain open during lockdowns. They permitted stores like Walmart, Costco, and Sam's Club to remain open. However, these stores sell items that are also sold in stores that were locked down, like Macy's or JCPenney, J. Crew Group, Neiman Marcus, and Bed Bath & Beyond. The lack of equal treatment caused many employees to lose their jobs, and many formerly financially healthy retailers have filed for bankruptcy. As political satirist H.L. Mencken said, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Walter Williams concluded his final column by saying, by the way, the best time to scare people, be wrong, and persist in being wrong is when the costs of being wrong are borne by others. And I think that, to me, is this, this needs to be understood by every person. As long as they're old enough to where they can understand it, I think even kids can understand this. When someone is telling you, you have to do this, are they weighing the costs, not just of what's going to be immediately seen? Well, if everybody wears masks, this may slow the spread of the virus. Okay, there's what's immediately seen. What's not immediately seen? Because I promise you, there are consequences that come. And this is the difference between good policy and bad policy. It's the difference between a good economist and a bad economist. And you may not aspire to be an economist, and that's okay. But if you have to live under policies, you've got to be in the, the habit of asking questions. Who else is likely to be affected? What are the likely unintended consequences? And I think that's probably the most maddening part of what I have seen throughout this year is the people who are making decisions, implementing lockdowns, issuing mandates and decrees and rah, rah, rah from, from their positions of power. They don't have to face accountability. They don't have to face the consequences of what they are saying. And, and, and I'm going to admit it it, it, it enrages me when I see them crying crocodile tears about, we feel so terrible, We're, our hearts are breaking for you. Really? Give up your paycheck then. Show me that you're really in this with us and give up that taxpayer-funded paycheck. Maybe you endure a little bit of hardship. I mean, the problem is we look around and, and you see example after example. Well, you know, you cannot go and work out at the gym. Oh, but look, Mayor de Blasio is going to the gym. You may not visit the hair salon, and yet here's Mayor Lightfoot going to the salon. 
Ah, well, there's Congressman or Congresswoman uh, Nancy Pelosi. She's doing the same thing. What's that? California's on a state of lockdown. No gatherings. Everybody has to be masked. Why, Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom, is that you traveling to go to a party and sitting there unmasked celebrating with your friends at a hoity-toity restaurant? Yeah. I don't think any person should have to apologize for feeling a sense of outrage when you look at, at the ones who are issuing the orders, the ones who are making these decisions that are depriving people of their, their livelihoods, depriving people of their, their stability in life, making them dependent on government. And then to sit there and tell them, yes, we feel terrible, but it had to be done. No, it really didn't. And, and I, I hope it doesn't sound too vindictive when I say this, but I still maintain there will be a reckoning at some point. Maybe it won't even be in this world. Maybe it'll, it'll be a reckoning that you know comes when each of us faces ultimate universal justice. But I think it's probably going to be sooner than later. And you're going to see some of these public officials held accountable in, in, in Nuremberg trial-style accountability. And they should be. If they've caused harm, if they've treated people as little more than lab rats, they absolutely should answer for that. I'm not saying that they should be taken out and shot at dawn. Um, I'm saying they need to be held accountable, as in criminally accountable, for the harm that they've caused. Now, lest this sound like, okay, so Brian's on a real bent for vengeance today. Let me tell you where my emphasis is uh, while, while we uh, await you know, that time when, when accountability can come. In the meantime, we've got to be better at looking around us and recognizing who is hurting, who is suffering, who's struggling right now financially, emotionally, mentally. I'm not going to outsource that to the same leaders who caused the harm. That's something you and I have a duty to, to do. It's funny, I saw somebody complaining yesterday, how dare people say that my safety is not your responsibility? Oh, I just want to get off this planet. And I think, yeah, you got it all wrong. It's personal responsibility, but some of the best parts of humanity come when we voluntarily help one another. But it's got to be voluntary for it to be the real thing. If it's done with a gun in your ribs, that's not charity, my friend. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, please check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you're looking for some light reading, I would encourage you, go ahead and check out the archives. I've got show notes going back, well, uh, going back a ways like months and months, and, and you will find a lot of interesting articles, you'll find a lot of interesting links, and a few thoughtful annotations that I throw in from time to time. Uh, most, of, uh, most of my word salad is expressed, though, over the microphone. I really need to do some more writing, though. I think, that's, uh, I think there's, there's something that happens when you write that just brings your thoughts into a good cohesive form, or at least that's it. It helps take them out of the abstract and put them into black and white. Anytime I'm struggling to get my mind around an issue, 
I find that by sitting and writing about it, that's when I start to organize my thoughts. So maybe it works for you. Maybe it does. Some people hate writing. I used to. But it's a great way to uh, to get your thoughts on paper. And there's an added benefit in that it, it also leaves a little something for the people who will follow you to reference. We'll talk more about that another time. I want to shift to bootleggers, Baptists, and banking. Kind of an interesting combination, wouldn't you say? My friend uh, Chicago Ron sent me this article the other day, and I know there's been a lot of interest. You know, Look, nobody who is paying attention can fail to appreciate that we are fast approaching some really choppy waters economically and financially. Politicians are spending oodles of money that is created out of thin air and that they have to borrow and that is, is just adding to an already crippling debt. It's not a sustainable system. There is, there is something coming. There, I think Ron Paul puts it this way. The crash approacheth. So consider yourself warned. Consider yourself, you know, in the know. But you got to think a little bit about monetary policy. And this is driving a lot of people to, to think about, uh, well, for instance, cryptocurrency, different alternatives, different ways that they can safely store their wealth or store value without uh, leaving all of their their wealth you know at the uh at, the, at in danger of of and exposed to you know being wiped off the ledgers by somebody pulling a plug in other words you know you understand what i'm saying most people's money is in the form of electrons in a computer in a bank it's a notation on somebody's ledger it's not physical cash it's not something they can get their hands on and so for it to disappear would only take someone saying, presto, it's gone. So I can understand people looking at other ways to, to maintain their wealth. Listen to this article from Scott A. Burns about bootleggers, Baptists, and banking. He says, in 1983, economist Bruce Yandel published an influential article on bootleggers and Baptists. Drawing from the Prohibition era, Yandel explained how regulations are oftentimes passed into law on the backs of ardent support from an unlikely alliance of interest groups with divergent motives. Those who support them because they benefit their own financial self-interest, like the bootleggers who supported prohibition because it allowed them to enrich themselves in the black market, and those who support them for ostensibly moral reasons, Baptists and other teetotalers who supported abstinence from alcohol. As Yandel observed, coalitions of opposing interest groups who are able to set aside their differences to unite behind a common legislative objective can be incredibly successive in getting their successful rather <laughs> sorry that was a good Freudian slip successful in getting their desired regulations passed into law. Now there are many examples of Yandel's bootleggers and Baptists today, but one of the most interesting comes from the world of banking. Specifically, he's talking about how recently big tech companies have aggressively tried to gain a foothold in the banking industry. Remember last year, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced his plans to launch, launch a cryptocurrency, Libra. Google recently announced its partnership with Citigroup to offer checking accounts. Uber has begun offering debit accounts. Amazon introduced Amazon Bank and began offering small business loans. Apple has already made waves in the payment industry with Apple Pay. It also plans to offer a variety of other financial products. Now, of course, not everybody is thrilled about big tech's ambitious foray into banking. Over the past few months, there's been a wave of bipartisan legislative proposals to prevent big tech firms from offering financial products. 
Support for these tighter regulations come from two unlikely bedfellows. The first are the anti-big tech ideologues. Now, this, can, this group consists of bipartisan factions ranging from progressive icons like Representative Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Sherrod Brown to right-wing populists like Senator Josh Hawley and Fox News host Tucker Carlson. And their fears are essentially twofold. First, they fear that big tech's foray into banking represents yet another dangerous step toward their hostile takeover of the economy. Allowing big tech to enter banking, the argument goes, would drive community banks and other small-scale financial service providers out of the market. This would allow tech giants to further consolidate their already enormous market power, pushing them even closer to monopoly status. Second, it would further erode digital privacy by giving tech giants even greater access to even more personal data on consumer finances, taking them one step closer to reaching the much-feared Skynet status. At the National Conservatism concert, Conference rather last summer, Carlson argued, The main threat from your, to your freedom does not come from government anymore, but from the private sector in the form of big tech companies like Google and Facebook. Now, the second group is the bankers. Bank lobbyists have long complained that tech firms have been given an unfair advantage over banks. In particular, they argue that tech firms have exploited regulatory loopholes that don't require them to apply for a standard banking charter and don't subject them to the more rigorous regulations that apply to traditional banks. Paul Mursky, chief economist of the independent community banker, says they're not doing anything innovative by skirting the regulation that banks have to abide by. By the way, I think I heard something similar about credit unions years ago from the banks. They, they didn't like that credit unions offered competition. Anyway, back to the article. The banking lobby's push to restrict big tech's entry into banking has already received considerable bipartisan support in Congress. Last November, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana and Representative Chewy Garcia from Illinois introduced the Keep Big Tech Out of Finance Act, which would prohibit Facebook and other big tech firms from creating their own digital currencies. The bill was deliberately introduced on the 20th anniversary of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. I think members of Congress on both sides of the aisle have serious concerns about the entry of big tech into banking and financial services, Garcia said. We're drawing a clear line between banking and commerce by clarifying the extent to which tech can be involved in financial activity. Although they haven't entirely prevented non-banks from offering an array of innovative financial products, this coalition of bankers and big tech critics, our proverbial bootleggers and Baptists respectively, has largely succeeded in thwarting tech companies in their effort to become full-fledged banks. Yet despite their public proclamations that these higher barriers to entry into banking are essential for protecting consumers, there's little to no evidence that banks are engaging in these high-tech anti-lobbying efforts out of the kindness of their hearts rather than their own financial self-interest. Go figure. Contrary to what these modern-day bootleggers and Baptists argue, allowing more entrance into financial services is not inherently risky. And to the extent that it exposes some consumers to more risk, it does so because those consumers prefer riskier options to the available alternatives. Competition and innovation benefit consumers. At a time when expanding access to financial services has become a priority, suppressing innovation from its most likely sources in the tech sector is simply a recipe for disappointment. 
As Aaron Klein of the Brookings and Brian Knight of Mercatus have noted, trying to shoehorn the new fintech world into the old regulatory system risks denying the benefits of competition and innovation to millions of Americans. Financial inclusion has skyrocketed around the world thanks in large part to relaxing outmoded regulations to give tech companies and other non-bank entities greater scope to find innovative solutions for reaching the poor and unbanked. There is no reason regulators should let banking lobbyists and anti-tech advocacy groups, our modern-day bootleggers and Baptists, prevent Americans from reaping the benefits of financial innovations. Scott Burns concludes by saying prohibition of alcohol proved to be a disastrously bad idea. Prohibiting competition in banking is unlikely to fare any better. I agree with him, and I'm not a fan of, you know, big tech. I'm not a fan of what Google does. I'm not a fan of what Facebook does or Twitter or some of these others that have, uh, I, I think, I think they have been uh, abusive in the way that they approach, you know, how they do business. And at the same time, they do provide benefits, and I can't deny, yep, I'm still checking my Facebook. Yep, I'm still looking things up on Google. So... I may have misgivings, but they are providing some benefit. There we go. There's that cost-benefit thing. Bottom line is, I want competition. And if it means competition with the uh, banking cartels, yeah, I want that too. (laughs) I'm convinced somebody may have a better way of doing things. Cryptocurrency may just be that way. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.